Hey, it's Bill Simmons from The Ringer, and this is a podcast called The Rewatchables. We have been doing it really since 2017. It started with how much we love the movie Heat. We decided to structure a whole podcast with categories, most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, Apex Mountain, what age the best. But here's the thing. If you want the full archive, you can hear them only on Spotify for free, by the way. So make sure to follow The Rewatchables on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Wednesday, July 12th. We talk a lot on this show about how hard it is to get comedies made these days, especially R-rated comedies for release in movie theaters. We know the reasons. They're not considered, quote, theatrical. Humor is regional, so the films don't play as globally. They tend to require star to get people interested, and those stars cost so much that the budgets become prohibitive. Plus, you could argue that the culture has shifted, so a lot of the R-rated stuff that I grew up loving isn't considered acceptable now, or it's all online anyways. You hear a bunch of excuses. And yet this summer, we've got a few R-rated comedies testing the waters in theaters. Right now, it's No Hard Feelings, with Jennifer Lawrence, which is doing okay, about $70 million worldwide on a $45 million budget. And last weekend was Joyride, which didn't do quite as well. It opened to about $6 million on a $20 million budget. But these days, the victory for a movie like Joyride, with unproven stars, lower budget, is getting it into theaters at all. And for that, we can thank Evan Goldberg. In addition to loving a good dick joke, and he really loves a good dick joke, Evan is the co-founder with his childhood buddy Seth Rogen in the production company Point Grey. Over the past decade, it's become one of the most successful comedy outfits in town, one of the few that can actually get a movie greenlit. They got a big deal at Lionsgate. They make movies and shows for a bunch of different outlets. They did Good Boys, Long Shot, Blockers, Disaster Artist, Neighbors. This is the end. In addition to Joyride this summer, they've also got the Ninja Turtles reboot for Paramount. I know Paramount's high on that movie. And they do TV like Pam and Tommy and The Boys. When you talk to people in the comedy world about who's doing it right, Point Grey always seems to come up. So to talk about the state of comedies and theaters and how to make comedies feel theatrical, I knew Evan was the guy. He's definitely got some thoughts on that. We recorded this on Friday. Joyride was just opening, but the conversation is just as relevant. So today it's comedies and theaters, how to keep them alive. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Evan Goldberg, who's co-founder of Point Grey and one of the most successful producers of comedy probably in the last 25 years. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So you are at the top level of comedy producers. You guys can get stuff made. 
And I want to know when you're in the room pitching, what are the reasons that studios give you for not doing it, for not doing a theatrically released comedy? What are you hearing these days? And what does a movie need for the studios to say, okay, we'll do this and we think we can get our money back on this? I think it comes down to one simple thing, which is eventizing. Like, is this an event? Like, is this going to get people to, to come out in droves because it's a big event that you like, have to be part of? And, and, you know, like we've made a lot of different comedies and comedies are usually like comedy plus high school. Um, comedy plus cannabis, sure. comedy plus childbirth. And, and that plus needs to be something that is like a big event that brings in like a full on crowd that is not just comedy fans. But what's the event? How did you guys and, and Adele Lim being the filmmaker on Joyride, what was the event in Joyride? I think in Joyride, the event is what well, the Asian community has never had something that is like this R rated, this raunchy, and this just like bonkers made truly like for for everyone but definitely they are the tip of the spear when it comes to this film and, and the audience that we wanted to bring in and the filmmakers we made it with so does lionsgate come back to you with a study that says we believe with our grassroots screenings and our outreach efforts we can generate an opening weekend that is you know 60 percent asian american or whatever it is and here's the calculus and we believe the budget for this movie should be x and let's do it yeah, pretty much. And and this film was not a film that we found and brought to Lionsgate. Lionsgate came to us and said, we have these incredible filmmakers. It's an awesome film. We think with you guys, this would be a hit. So let's do it together. And, you know, sometimes we have to do like lots of calculus and think about things and look at our calendar. And this time we were just like in, we're in totally. This makes sense. This is right up our alley. It feels fresh and it feels like it does bring in comedy plus another audience. You know, and then there's the Asian element, but also like it's all female team. So like there's that element too. So it felt, mm-hmm. it felt really promising to us. And, and more than anything, you know, like there's all these calculations, but also it's just funny as hell. Right. That does matter. But that is execution dependent. That oh, requires oh, yeah. you to do your job and make it good. Well, I mean, on this film in particular, uh, like when I read the first draft of the script I read, I laughed hysterically a ton of times and then I cried at the end. And usually if I'm laughing hysterically and then I cry, I'm in. Let's talk about the star question in comedies because you guys have done both you've done star driven vehicles you've done no stars you know good boys perfect example that movie did 111 million dollars i was looking at that i was like wow did not realize blockers did like 96 million worldwide how important is the star factor these days in getting a movie made because it also increases the cost i mean i was looking at no no hard feelings the jennifer lawrence movie that budget was 45 million which makes it more difficult to get the money back in theaters. But that's what Jennifer Lawrence costs. So if you're looking at a choice of doing a $20 million version of No Hard Feelings and a $45 million version, but you're not going to have the star, which do you think is the better version and which do you think the studio is more likely to go for? That's a studio-dependent question. Some Uh studios highly value having a star in the film. Oh, interesting. I personally believe that it's conceptual, like the concept is what really matters. And like using good boys as the example, like you see that poster, you get it all. As soon as you see that, you're like young kids, big R rating, red poster, I get it. And it's like that, that's what really makes things work. And like the same thing with blockers, which is like the most insane title ever. And well, it was cock blockers first. Oh yes. Oh yes, it was. Joyride was joy fuck club, right? 
Oh, how I wish we could have used that title. <laughs> it makes it, I, I, I saved all the like poster comps of that title. But yeah, it's, it, it's these things that just like, if you can get something in one image, I think that is bigger than any star when it comes to comedies. That's interesting. And you say it's studio dependent, meaning some studios agree with you and others say, yeah, that's nice, guys. But where's Will Ferrell? Where's Jennifer Lawrence? Yeah, I think it's, it's not even studios. It's head of marketing. It comes down to who is the head of marketing and what is their belief system as to what sells. And it is very different company to company and, and regime to regime. You think good boys and blockers would have opened, would have done that kind of money today? I do. I do. Really? I think that I do. I mean, maybe a little less, but like conceptually, it's just so clear. You just get it. And also like with blockers, like you had the adults and the kids. So like that, that brings in like two different kind of crowds, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has that thing where like the kids want to see it, but they're not supposed to see it, but they want to see it. Right. There were some alarmingly young Asian girls in the movie, in the theater when I saw Joyride, like moms that brought their 10 year old girls to that movie. I'm still traumatized from my mom coming to the premiere of uh, Superbad. Your mom came to that premiere? Yeah, and she was she was the only person to reject usage of their name in the film. All, all the names of the film are actually like friends from high school we had, and and I wanted to name the Evan character's mother, my mother's name, and then she read the pages and was like, uh, I'm not doing What was Evan's mom's review of Superbad? Oy vey, this is embarrassing. I'm proud of you, oy vey. Did you have to have him draw the penises? I could see that. Yes, my brother drew all those. He's a lawyer. Oh, that's funny. So another thing that I get asked a lot, and we've talked about this on the show before, my producer Craig has this uh, in his anger list for things Hollywood has not done. Why is there no Blumhouse for comedy? Meaning a shop that does low budget stuff, develops a ton and puts stars on the, you know, make nothing now, make a lot later and just throws a lot of shit at the wall. And then all of a sudden they're making five comedies for theaters and they have an output deal with a studio and it's a real business. Or do you think of you guys as the Blumhouse of comedy? Uh, I mean, like we talk about that exact conversation often. And I think like uh, the answer is that comedy is maybe I'm uh, trying to be self-important here, but comedy is the hardest one to make. You have to make a great drama, great characters that makes sense, that is fun and energetic, but also very funny. Like if you take any movie that has been made and try to also make it very funny, it's just really hard. And I think people think it's like you throw a bunch of comedians in the room and they just say some funny stuff and it's then, yeah, you got a hilarious movie. And that's just not how it works. Like there are shows like that, uh, like The League, you know, had like some of the funniest people on earth improving. Sure. But even then, they still planned ahead. Like it's just, it's, it's not as easy as people think. Like, like when you have a horror movie, you have to just like shoot the scene, shoot the beats. It's written on the page. There you yeah. go. We're done. But in a comedy, you have to like crack it, and get in there. And then everyone has to be flowing and everyone needs to be balanced. And it's just really hard to like slap together 10, $2 million comedies. I don't think is going to pay off in the grand scheme of things, but I'm not certain about that. That's, this is an ongoing debate we have. Like it could be the smartest thing on earth to try that, but I, I think it'll be harder than it would be to do what they're doing at Blum. Is it an appetite for the studios as well? Do they see risk there? Because it's not a, like a genre like horror where you have the elements and you can kind of model it out and it's probably going to do okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it is 
harder to figure out. It is harder to know. Well, also with the horror movies, like they really do like at Blum from what I understand, you know, like they really make 10 and then sell nine off to streamers and make back their cash plus a little. And then the 10th one that pops is the one that pays for all the other ones. And yeah, I just, I don't know if the model would work the same. Maybe it would. Someone will give you guys a hundred million dollars, maybe $200 million. Someone will say, Hey, point gray. If you and Seth, and James want to go out there and replicate the Blumhouse model for comedy, we will give you a couple hundred million dollars to go out and do that. Someone would. Yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, like, you know, like we are debating that all the time. It seems like that could be a good move. Mm-hmm. It all, it also seems like we might be working just as hard on every film and making way less money. It's, right. it's hard to tell. Like, is that the move or is the move to uh, have people getting cock block in a spaceship, in an intergalactic battle? Or to have people, uh, good boys, but have uh, magical super gods taking them in an intergalactic, multidimensional battle. Right. Like, you know, because like one of the biggest comedies in the last long time, last decade to me, is Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, or Free Guy. Free Guy's a comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and both of those are just IP out the wazoo. Yeah, I mean, that's people say, oh, comedy's dead in theaters. Yeah, that, that is true to a certain extent. But the superhero genre has sort of usurped comedies as well. And some of these other, you talk about theatricality and the extra elements, you know, having Ryan Reynolds in a big effects-driven, IP-driven, like, adventure comedy is another way. I mean, Deadpool is a comedy. Like, there's other ways to do comedies that make the studios less nervous about them. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like, you know, you got to change with the times, no matter who you are. And like comedy back in the day, like you could have one joke every two minutes and people would be like, oh, what a funny movie that was. I laughed yeah. 30, 32 times. And today, like if you don't laugh like 260 times in a movie, you're like, ah, it wasn't that funny. Right, right, right. The Boys is a comedy. Yes, yes, I know. And, and, and when I talk to people about it, comedy seems to be the main thing that pops to them. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, so Point Grey obviously has gone way beyond movies that Seth stars in. But that's often a big turning point for these star-driven companies when you can get stuff made that the star is not going to be in. What was the turning point for Point Grey with you guys where you said, okay, this is not just going to be a vehicle for stuff that we will create and Seth will be in? 
blockers. It was it was a so was that late? That was twenty eighteen. Yeah, I mean, we had things like our first movie we produced was fifty fifty, and like Seth was not the main character in it. It was about but he was in it, but he was yeah, he was totally in it, and like he was in most everything. But blockers was the one where like he is not in it whatsoever, and it worked, and it changed the game for us, and that led to Good Boys, which led to Joyride, and. As a production company, that is obviously one of our biggest goals to be able to make films that do not have Seth in them. And uh, and we're very proud of that. And I hope to have Seth never be in one of our films again. That's a joke. <laughs> that's a joke. Especially when he's off doing serious stuff like The Fablemans. Yeah, that's fun for me. That's just so weird. He like he's, he, he goes off for a couple months, comes back, and he's in a Steven Spielberg movie. It's so surreal. I won't be able to ever like fully accept that happen. It's so cool. I mean, you guys have aspirations to do those kinds of movies or is Point Grey going to stay comedies? No, no, we are not going to stay comedies. We are always going to have comedies that are mainstay, but we're always working on other stuff. We're interested in, in everything, you know, and we always have been. It's just people wanted comedies from us and, and we like to make things, not a uh, gruel over developing things that might get made. So we chose the path least resistant that is also the most fun, but we are very interested in every other genre like want to tap into everything it's just it's it's all it's all interesting to us and also like us you know there's me seth and james and there's uh, 11 other people here and they have different tastes and different interests and we like to kind of encourage everybody to try to pursue what they're interested in now where do you come down i don't know if i've ever seen you quoted i know i've seen seth quoted on this but where do you come down on this whole argument that political correctness and the change in the culture has killed comedy because there are movies, I just watched This Is The End the other night because they did it on The Rewatchables, which is a great episode. You used to listen to that. And there are jokes in that movie that you would not do today. Where do you stand on this argument that you can't be truly funny in movies because you can't push that envelope beyond what the Twitterverse is going to accept? I assume Seth gave the same response in whatever he was quoted in, which is, that's utter bullshit. It's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. Comedy is always going to exist. It is always going to change. Like when I was a kid, my dad like fed me a nonstop diet of like blazing saddles, and like, right. uh, I don't know what that would be like if that came out now. And 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 it goes. It happens fast, you know. Like Superbad has a few things that are absolutely unacceptable anymore. Knocked Up has some things that are totally not appropriate. This is the end. And like at the time, they were. And comedy, like, you know, breaks things. It, it pushes the boundaries in order to, like, express a, a message about society often. And and that is, that's par for the course. That means that if you make something great and comedic, odds are 10 years later, there's going to be some things in it that are no longer appropriate. But it's because they were pushing the boundaries at the time. And you're not big on reverse censorship. You're not the kind of person who says, oh, don't show that movie because the things in it are not appropriate now. I think that is truly a crazy thing to do. I would never change any of the movies we've made, mostly because it's history. I'm, I'm like a big history nerd. I'm like, you need to keep history real. Like, if you start changing it, then your perception of the future no longer aligns with reality. Like, people said what they said back in the day. People did what they did. People had their level of appropriateness, and people had their racist leanings and their sexist leanings. And if you, like, wash that away, then the future generations are not going to appreciate what has occurred and what has developed and what has changed. So I, yeah, I, I think it's very inappropriate to alter past works. And, and some people, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, how dare you? If people want right. to do that with their, with their work, go for it. But I don't think we're doing that with ours. 
if George Lucas wants to add Greedo or another Java scene, listen, it's his it's his bag. He can do what he wants. I was joking with someone earlier today that <laughs> it, it would be like if we just like re-release Superbad and added like a few CG characters, maybe we could like re-release it to like some new success. Just re-release everything with like a fun, cute little CG character. Well, you know what you should do is you should do a whatever anniversary re-release and then put a shit ton of deleted scenes, ad libs, stuff like that at the end. I would I would watch that for hours. Back in the the days where we were making all these movies with Judd, he uh, you know DVDs were still big time, and Judd made us go to crazy lengths to make like exceptional DVDs with tons of features. And if you ever want to see some stuff like that, the super bad knocked up Pineapple Express DVDs have hours of crazy alt scenes and deleted stuff, and uh, it's one of my favorite things to go back and look at. That's really funny. The star question, you know, one of the things that came out of your early movies, the Judd collaborations, and even some of the stuff you guys did solo in the early 2010s created stars all those guys became stars seth jonah jason siegel all these guys is that possible now is stardom possible out of these comedies is ashley park going to be a star based on joyride if it does well i think she's fantastic in the movie but it's just such a different landscape how do you think about that when you're casting and making and seeing how these movies are enjoyed I guess I would say we don't think about that. You know, we just audition people, find the right actor who's going to make the part funniest and make the character come to life and, and be true to the character's emotional arc. And that's kind of the path we go down. And if they, and I imagine that it gives them the best chance of being a star is just like finding the right person for the right role. We're not like uh, casting people based on their Twitter followers and how like zeitgeisty they are. Um, and I think that is probably why a lot of the people in our movies and Judd's movies uh, have, have become stars. Not because we were trying to make stars, but because they were just the, when, when you're the perfect person for a role, like Michael Sarah and Superbad, he was just the perfect person for that role, mm-hmm. and he he was already a star, but it, it really like took him to the next level. And I think it's just because when when it feels perfect and it feels that right, people people go with it and it carries weight. But you must think about it when you cast. You know, you've got to have a certain. I mean, you don't have to, but it helps if someone brings an audience. And I just don't know who brings an audience these days to comedies. You know, you're looking at the stars. It's still the same stars from 20 years ago. Well, that's why what I said earlier in the combo that uh, it's the concept, you know, like yeah. the concept carries us quality characters that seem real, memorable, relatable uh, and are hilarious. Like that's what will make someone become a star off of one of these things. We got to work that way, not the opposite. Interesting. I think it's, it's just an interesting time for comedies. When, especially when you look at the streaming landscape and the impact that these movies have on streaming, we don't see the huge streaming hits, at least on the film side, on the comedy side as well. When you talk to the streamers, is there a real interest in doing comedies? Do they see the value or is it, you know, do they want the serialized? Do they want the, the teen dramas? Like, what's the what's the landscape like when you are pitching streamers? Um, I mean, I think with comedies, they want the like, and what, you know, like, uh, like, it's got a comedy plus uh, underwater kingdom. It's a comedy plus <laughs> intergalactic space battle. They want that. They want something else. And it, it all goes back to Thor Ragnarok. Like, why would they make just a comedy when they can have one that also involves IP fighting with magic super hammers uh, against other but the streamers don't have that netflix doesn't have ip they want you to create it 
Yeah, but I'm saying uh, maybe I said too much IP there, mm-hmm. but they want like something more than just the comedy or they want just the comedy and there's like a never ending flow of just like mediocre seven out of 10, six out of 10s that just keep people signed in because they know at least I, I got something that's going to make me laugh a few times. But I also think that's why uh, the streamers are like so gung ho about these stand up specials. Right. It's the most financially logical thing they could ever do. Like pay one person. I don't know. I don't know the finances, but pay someone a few million bucks, a million bucks, three million bucks. You got a thing that everyone signs into. And like, I know I do. Like, I'm a father and I got two companies. And like, when I get home, like I can't watch a full movie and I hate watching half a movie and then a third of it. So I'll watch a 45 minute stand up special. I'll laugh 40 times and I'm so happy. Totally. So are you bullish on the comedy genre? I hear a lot of depression amongst comedy producers. You know, the movies just aren't there. There's no demand. There's no appetite. It's so hard. You got to have the, the, perfect package to get anything made what's your are you are you excited or are you not excited about the next three five years in the comedy space i'm super excited i'm not on the same train as those other, those other people at all because i think like it is what i'm saying that like we need to we need to make thor ragnarok like now and, and like i love comic books i love space things i love sci-fi i love horror movies so like i couldn't be more excited to mash them up which is kind of what we do like this is the end as an example. Like, I think if we release this at the end right now, it would absolutely do well because it's a horror movie. And like, it tackles two genres. Like, we have monsters running around and things flaming yeah. and people dying and big The effects stunts. would be better too. <laughs> How dare you imply the effects don't hold up? Listen, I just watched it. They, they hold up. It's fine. But they could be better. They could be better. I'll say this. They're incredible for how much they cost. Yes, I'm sure that's true. I just, I really want to see the detail of Michael Sarah being impaled. Like, I, I really want every little visceral element of that. Why doesn't DC or Marvel give you guys something? We're talking with them all the time. We always yeah. have been. Um, we're very hesitant to be hamstrung by their requirements, you know? Right. You don't want to get Lord and Millard like on Solo, where they're uh, like, wait, what? You hired us to make a comedy and then you don't want it to be a comedy? <laughs> yeah exactly like that that did freak us out that kind of stuff is is very frightening and like we know from experience like we need to do our thing and that's how we do well and when we have to uh play by uh someone else's handbook or like incorporate specific things that we're contractually obligated to we had to do that on the green hornet a bit and it was right extremely frustrating and when i look back on it it's just like what like we had to have a secretary character why why why, why? And it's just like, it was just this, like these rules the IP came with and, and, you know, we, we, we made the best that we could, but that taught us like, we want as few rules as possible. Though I do think like DC in particular, like is getting to a place where they're just like, yeah, go for it filmmaker ever since well, the Joker. they're desperate. Yeah. So that could be a place where we can pull off some stuff like that. But yeah, we're huge comic nerds. We love Marvel stuff. We love DC stuff. We want to make some of it, but we need to find stuff that we can do the right way, AKA our way. And as great as The Boys is and as successful as it is, it might scare some of these companies. They're like, we're not, we're not doing that. Yeah. They, <laughs> they, they should. should. They definitely they should. should. <laughs> That's the great thing about The Boys is like, like after the 10 year or whatever, 15 year cycle of the whole Marvel thing and then Endgame came out and like, our, it was just a fluke. We've been trying to make it for a decade, but we happened to come out with it right after the first giant Marvel arc finished. And people just like, were like, I understand this. And they were like set to laugh at it. They were ready. Yeah. Totally. I'm not even a huge comic book person, but I instantly got what it was. And you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be fun. All right, Evan Goldberg, congrats on your success. Congrats on getting Joyride into theaters. Good luck with the movie. Thanks, man.
All right, we are back with the call sheet. We got producer Jesse in here for Craig today, who's still out on his honeymoon doing God knows what. Uh, Jesse, <laughs> are you excited? Are you excited for Mission Impossible? I am. I remember watching Mission Impossible as a kid and thinking, this is cool. I remember playing the video game and thinking it was extremely awesome. You know, all the, all this right. message will self-destruct in five seconds. That sticks with me. You get that in this movie too. I saw it last night. I went with Kara Swisher, who is a uh, notable Tom Cruise fan. She was in LA and we had to go see Mission Impossible together. She loved it. I loved it. I'm a sucker for this stuff. Uh, we saw it on a gigantic screen at one of those fan screenings. And uh, I just think like this is now where we are in the movie business is that Tom Cruise is the biggest star out there and this is his signature franchise. So when I saw the tracking, I was actually a little surprised. It seemed low to me. 90 million for the five day. This is a you know, we're doing this a day earlier than normal because Dead Reckoning Part One is opening on a Wednesday. So the previews start last night, Tuesday, and it's got 90 million for the five day. I'm going to take the over. On that, I think that this is going to overperform based on the Top Gun Halo effect. 90 million is pretty crazy to think for a five day opening. Like, I remember that would top the charts for a three day weekend. Well, but the Mission Impossible has never been a gigantic draw, as it's always been reliable, but the highest grossing of the franchise was Fallout, the last one, and it did 790 worldwide never got to even close to a billion and the last one opened to 61 million and that was a three-day not a five-day but still 90 would be fine for this especially since there's a huge upside overseas they're hoping to get to 250 for the weekend overseas and they're really you know most of the premieres and marketing has been global to try to get that crowd in there but mission impossible has always been a male skewing franchise the last one was 58% older guys, um, 25% was over the age of 45, but Top Gun played, played younger. And I think that a lot of that younger audience may actually discover Mission Impossible through this movie. And at least that's what Paramount's hoping. So basically, a good chunk of the people that saw Top Gun will see Tom Cruise and they'll, they'll be enough for them to go watch Mission Impossible to take a chance, even if they've never even seen another Mission Impossible movie. That's the goal. That is what Paramount is hoping. And, you know, I, I think I actually thought the tracking would be higher. So we'll take the over on 90. It's still not going to beat Barbie. That's my prediction from yesterday that I'm sticking to. But at least the opening, I think globally, overall, it will. But for the opening, I'm going to pick Barbie. Mission Impossible, though, it's actually good. I, you know, Tom Cruise still got it. I'm just excited to uh, just let my brain go and just see a bunch of wild action stunt scenes. You know what, though? You got to kind of pay attention to these. They're actual movies. Like, there is a plot and a storyline, and it's a little confusing at times. There's, like, a lot going on with the story. So don't turn it off completely. This is not Fast and Furious. Oh, well, <laughs> slight bummer, but still exciting. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Evan Goldberg. I want to thank producer, editor, Jesse Lopez. I want to thank you. We will see you tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.